I'm Tyler Hammock, and um, I'm going to be reading our verse today, and I'm a community group leader. Did I do that right? <laughs> um, Exodus 14, 10 through 31. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? It is not this what we say to you in Egypt. Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of all of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, and for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Thanks, Tyler. <clears throat> Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. Uh, my name is Mac Harris. I work in the youth group here at Hope. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be here at Cotswold this morning. I don't get to be here very often. So thanks for having me. And thank you for letting me uh, walk with you through um, the next step in the life of Moses, which we've been looking at for the last several weeks here at 
hope. Um, Today we're looking at, as we just read, a familiar passage, maybe for many of us, the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, And as we we enter into a passage that might be familiar, I want to challenge us to um, look at it with new eyes and try to to recapture the, the childlike wonder of what it was like to hear this story for the first time. But before we go any further, would you uh, pray with me this morning? Father God, we are grateful that your spirit is with us. Um, we are grateful that you know our hearts and that you know what we bring as we come and sit here today. God, we just thank you that we get to worship you, that we get to be um, with other people, other people who know you and love you, and just pray that you would uh, change our hearts this morning, that you would um, use a story like the Red Sea and what you did to deliver your people um, to show us what you are like and to show us how much you love us to this day. Lord, we ask these in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past weekend, uh, on Friday night, I got to help babysit uh, Benton and Butler King, um, Emma and AK's two precious little boys. And, And when I say I got to help babysit, I really mean that I got to be kind of the fun uncle for a couple hours on Friday nights, um, and I got to play football with Benton and bring donuts and really distract him uh, from going to bed and teach him how to say Roll Tide, which is very, very important. Um, it's the important catechisms for your, for your children. Uh, but another thing I got to do was read Benton a bedtime story, and it was so much fun to, to have a picture book open and, and for him to just be captivated by the pictures and the story and for him to be pointing to everything, and it was so much fun. And I think that uh, as, as people grow up, um, we, we start to think that we grow out of uh, children's stories and we grow out of needing to be captivated and captured by stories. But I think that's a mistake in a lot of ways because um, whether it's someone sharing their story, their, their personal testimony about the ways that God has worked in their life or maybe it's reading a good book or just being uh, brought in and binging your favorite Netflix show, Stories have this incredible power, this way of capturing our attention and holding, it, holding us there, whether we're children or whether we are adults. I think this is intentional. This is a hard wiring that God has given us to be captivated by stories because he's a storytelling God. And for ancient Israel, the real story, the true story of God's epic deliverance from the land of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea wasn't just this great one-time event for the people of Israel, but it was something that they could return to over and over and over again. This story is, is mentioned explicitly over 25 times in the Old Testament alone, and there are countless other allusions and references to God's deliverance through the waters. And this story was so important to them because it was really the foundation of their identity. It, it told them who they were and what kind of God they served. For the past several weeks, we've been looking a lot at a lot of the rising action, the, the, the building tension between God and Israel and Egypt, and he called Moses a few weeks ago, we saw, and then there were the 10 plagues that we walked through, and they culminated in the Passover feast and the Passover celebration, which we looked at last week, where the, the blood of a lamb was shed to protect God's people from this, this destroyer, this angel that was going throughout the land of Egypt, killing every firstborn child and adult. It was this bloody uh, event, and it was the final straw that broke the camel's back that let Pharaoh let the Israelites leave Egypt. And on their way out of, of Egypt and of slavery, they also plundered the Egyptians on the way. And so they got rich off of their captors, and things are looking up for the Israelites. They're finally looking free. 
And not only that, Exodus chapter 13 tells us that God himself is leading the people out of Egypt, that he appears by day as a pillar of cloud and by night he shows up as a pillar of fire. And that's his very presence leading his people out of Egypt. For the first time in 400 years, it looks like God is on the move. His people are on the move and they're they are walking, leading, he's being, being led back to the promised land. This hope is palpable. It's in the air. But it doesn't last for very long. And that's kind of the point where we meet our, the Israelites today. Because God's purpose is to, to deliver his people, but he does it in a way that is unexpected and often unwanted by us. And so first, God demands their dependence. At the beginning of chapter 14, we learned that Pharaoh had re-hardened his heart and that he, he regretted letting the Israelites leave. And so he sends his army of, of soldiers and chariots chasing after the Israelites, and this sends them into a full panic, as we see in verse 10. This is the world's greatest fighting force with, with hundreds of, of chariots and thousands of soldiers coming after them, and, and Israel is completely weaponless. They're powerless. They have no army This isn't bringing a knife to a gunfight. This is bringing a rock to a fight with state-of-the-art tanks for that time. And the Israelites realize that even worse, they have nowhere to run. Because rather than leading them directly out of Egypt by the the shorter westward route, God has, has taken them farther to the south. And that he has led them on a roundabout journey and now they find themselves pinned against the Red Sea. God had, had showed off and flexed his muscles during the plagues, but now it seems like his military tactics were short-sighted. They have no boats, no weapons, and nothing but fear. And so in verse 11, they cry out to Moses and they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses, what have you done to us? And even more, by extension, God, what are you doing? This moment of crisis hits and all rational thought goes out the window. They've forgotten what God has done just hours beforehand. The God who is literally with them, in front of them, by a pillar and by a cloud, they've forgotten all of that, and suddenly they wish more than anything to be back in slavery instead of to be being led by God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is something that we can relate to in a lot of ways. On one level, there's the idea of, of trying to follow God and, and being led by Him, and then suddenly a big obstacle comes in front of us, right? A, a Red Sea in your life, and it's scary. And all we want to do is turn back and run the other way, flee from where God is calling us, maybe back to, to our Egypt, to something that was enslaving us beforehand. But I think on an even deeper level, this passage reveals uh, something even darker about our hearts, that we like the God of, of Psalm 23, right? The God who leads us beside still waters and makes us lay down in green pastures. But we don't really like the God who leads us to the edge of the Red Sea. We want a God who is controllable and who is comfortable and frankly makes our life easy. But as one commentator puts it, this passage reminds us that God is not as tame as we would like for him to be. And oftentimes, just as we begin to trust God, He then calls us out way beyond what we're comfortable and way beyond what we're capable of, and that's on purpose. The counselor Dan Allender puts it like this. He says that 
after moments of glory, God generally tells us to engage a difficulty that is impossible to handle at our level of maturity and faith. Glory casts us not into ease, but into the arms of a relentless God who desires for us to know even greater glory. So why does God do this? Why does he give Israel the deliverance in the Passover and then lead them straight into a trap? Why does he send us straight into the stormy seas of of cancer and addiction and broken relationships and so much more? If we turn to the Apostle Paul, he describes his life in a lot of similar terms. His life was filled with, with beatings and persecution and shipwrecks and imprisonments and he says this in his, letter, in his second letter to the Corinthian church. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. In other words, what what Allender and what Paul are saying is that God sometimes takes us to the end of ourselves to teach us how to rely on Him. We're so caught up in chasing our own comfort that we forget that God wants a real connection with us and wants for us to desperately feel our need and our dependence upon Him. And really, ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God in, in the Garden of Eden, this has been the opposite of what's natural for us. Right? Their desire was to be independent and to not need God, and that's just like you and me today. I feel like all week long I was, I was struggling with this, with this passage and trying to write a sermon and trying to do it entirely on my own, and it's really one of the silliest things you can do is to try to write a sermon without praying and asking God to help you um, and to, to help you understand and see what He wants you to say in the first place. That's how all of us are wired, is to try to do things on our own and not to need God. And so God uses things like the Red Sea and like tra- tra- challenges and trials in our lives sometimes to teach us how to trust and to delight in the Lord by letting go of the things that we can control. Brendan Manning uh, has, has a quote and he describes faith and trust in the Lord like this. He says, the way of trust is a movement into obscurity, into the undefined, into ambiguity, and not into some predetermined, clearly delineated plan for the future. The next step discloses itself only out of a discernment of God acting in the desert of the present moment. The reality of naked trust is the life of the pilgrim who leaves what is nailed down, obvious and secure, and walks into the unknown without any rational explanation to justify the decision or guarantee the future. Why? Because God has signaled the movement and offered offered in it His presence and His promise. See, following the Passover, Israel knew a lot about God's power, but they didn't quite grasp how much they needed Him and His power. And so He calls them to walk deeper into that dependence and into that helplessness before He delivers them again. But as as Manning said, God promises not to leave them and not to leave us in that state of, of being over our skis all by ourselves. And that leads us to our second point this morning, that God loves us enough to push us out deeper into our faith, but He also loves us enough to come between us and our fears, between us and the enemy. 
Looking at verses 19 and 20, we see this in a very literal sense. In verse 19, the pillar, sorry, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved, moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. You see, the, the Egyptians think they've caught the Israelites on the ropes, and they're ready for an easy slaughter. But then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord and the, the pillar of the cloud of God's very presence moves from before the Israelites and moves behind them, moving between the Egyptians on one side and the Israelites on the other. So very clearly, we see God literally moving to protect his people, standing between them and danger. He knows that Israel will be crushed on their own, so he moves between to protect them. It's the, the divine version of those scenes in, in a high school movie where one kid is getting bullied and another one steps up and says to the bullies, you know, if you want to get to him, you'll have to go through me. And that's exactly what God says about the Israelites in this instance. But at the same time, by moving between Israel and Egypt, God in another sense kind of tightens the noose around the Israelites. Now it's not just an army trapping them against the Red Sea, but now God himself is between the, the Israelites and pushing them towards the sea. God is pushing them deeper into the thing that they don't want to walk into. But then I think there's another and maybe less obvious way that this passage reveals this, this attribute about God, that he moves between us and what we are afraid of, and what, between us and our enemy. And I think to see it, we have to be willing to read the Bible, not just in a one-to-one uh, -one sense of, okay, what, what does the Red Sea symbolize for them and what does it mean for us? What does Egypt symbolize for them and what does it mean for me and my life today? But we have to, to read uh, Old Testament stories in particular and stories like the Exodus as a part of a bigger story of God's work of redemption in the world and seeing that what things that happen in the Old Testament often point forward to things that will happen later and point to God's bigger plan um, to save sinners. In verses 13 and 14, which we skipped over, go like this, and, and this is right after the Israelites have cried out to Moses and, and um, asked, what have you done to us? In verse 13, Moses responds, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." So far in our study of Moses' life, we've, we've seen a lot of his weaknesses, his doubts, his questions about God. But here, maybe for the first time, Moses is doing the right thing, right? Everyone else is doubting him. The whole nation, millions of other people are questioning God, and Moses stands firm. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's, it's even stronger. It looks like it's an encouragement, and it's a, like a warm uh, encouragement that Moses is giving to his people, but really this is a rebuke. There's almost a, a shut up quality and stand firm and don't you know what you're doing? Almost you idiots that Moses is saying to the Israelites. He's rebuking them for their lack of faith. And we kind of want to say, well, bravo Moses, and we expect for God to pat Moses on the back and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But that makes God's response to Moses even more surprising. Immediately after that in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground. So rather than applauding Moses for his, his strong faith and rebuking the Israelites, God rebukes 
Moses. That why do you, it's a singular you, Moses, why do you cry out to me? If this were a math problem, right, something wouldn't seem to add up because the righteous is bearing the rebuke for the unrighteous. And something strange is going on here. This won't be the first time that we see it in the life of Moses, but here he acts as a mediator between God and Israel. He's, he's standing between a sinful people on one side and a holy God on the other. This means that he gets the thankless task of taking Israel's complaints and, and Israel's pleas before God and also bearing the rebuke from God that the people deserve. He's caught in between, Moses, between the Israelites and God. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about the Passover where the blood of the innocent lamb came between God's judgment and the people of Israel's sins. By that, the, the blood of that lamb bore the punishment that Israel's people deserved. And here Moses is physically standing like that blood stood between God and Israel. And the reality for all of us today is that because of our sin, because of the brokenness and the darkness within us, we are also in desperate need of a mediator. We can't fix the problem of our sin on our own, and we need someone else to come between us and to advocate on our behalf. In the, New Te- in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses was always pointing forward to someone else, to a, a, to a greater Moses. And hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ would say, I am the lamb who comes between my people and my God. That he would l- willingly and lovingly step in front of the judgment that our sins deserved, and he would let his body be broken and his blood be shed to save and protect his people. Paul writes about Jesus like this in 1 Timothy. He says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. At the cross, Jesus acted as our ultimate mediator, our go-between, our only hope. There at the cross, the, the greater Moses took on not just the rebuke that the people that we deserved, but also the price. He bore the punishment of sin, of death that we deserved. He took on death so that we could have new life. And really, this is the heart of the good news that the Israelites felt this day in the desert, and this is the heart of the good news that we can feel today, that the God who does this, the God who redeems from death into life, he is worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that we have to give. See, the Israelites had, had resigned themselves to death. They expected to be slaughtered by the, by the Egyptians and die in unmarked graves in the, in the desert. But in verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. See, Moses stretches out his hands, And Israel obediently walks across, but it is obvious that God is the one who does all the work. God parts the seas, 
God confuses the enemy. God gets the glory. This massive body of water, this huge and powerful army is no match for him. And it is just as easy for him to separate the waters of the Red Sea as it is for him to send the waters crashing back down and the judgment to wash over the enemy. All he asks of the Israelites is that they trust him enough to walk forward. I think whenever we see miracles like this in the Bible, our first instinct can be to, to rush and try to, to find a natural explanation and explain away a miraculous event like this. Here we see a glimpse of sometimes God works in mysterious ways that we don't understand at all, and sometimes God uses very natural things to make supernatural things happen. Here he uses the strong east wind to blow all night long and separate the waters. He uses a cloud to confuse and darken the eyesight of the enemy, and he uses marshy and, and, and uh, sticky ground and, and wet, wet soil to slow down the Egyptian chariots. And just as, as people have tried to explain away miracles, there also um, are many people who try to say that maybe this event didn't happen in the Red Sea, right? This is too big of a body of water. Maybe it happened in more of a marshland or, or a smaller lake or um, maybe something called the Sea of Reeds because the Hebrew is a little bit um, unclear. And the truth is we don't know exactly where the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea, but we do know that God parted the waters, that God led his people through on dry ground, and that God sent those very same waters crashing back down over, and the wave of judgment washed over and drowned the Egyptians. God parts waters, and Israel walks through on dry land. And if we notice, it doesn't say that God let everyone who had strong faith, that those are the people who got through, and everyone who doubted was left behind on the other side. It doesn't say that the people who would end up being good, upstanding, moral, and obedient followers of God, that they got to go through on the other side, but everyone who would do bad things in the future, they were left behind. As we'll, as we'll soon find out that the Israelites are very good at disobeying God, at forgetting Him, at rebelling against Him time and time again. But the parting of the seas didn't depend on the strength of the Israelites. It didn't depend on the moral character or their goodness of the Israelites, but it was entirely based on the grace and the mercy and the power of God. And that's why the Israelites respond the only way appropriate. They know they've had no hand in their deliverance. And verse 30 says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Moses promised that Israel would see the salvation of the Lord if only they would stand and be silent. And that's exactly what happens. They see the waters part, they see the safe passage to the other side, and they see the ways of judgments wash over and drown the Egyptians. In verse 30 and 31, there's a, a unique thing where the, the hand of the Egyptians, the word for hand, and the word for the great power of the Lord, um, is really the same word in the Hebrew. And what it's saying is that the hand, the power of the Egyptians was, was strong, it was scary, it was terrifying for the Israelites. But that day, the great power, the great hand of the Lord proved to be so much mightier and so much more clearly dominant over the power of the Egyptians. Egypt was powerful, but it was no match for the great power of God. 
And God crafted this whole story in such a way that there could be no other explanation that it was his great power that saved Israel that day and nothing else. As God promised in verse 18, he would get the glory in this chapter. I want to close today um, by, by reading a little bit of a story that some of you may have uh, heard before, um, but maybe aren't super familiar with. It, it comes from my favorite uh, book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, and um, it comes from The Horse and His Boy. And in this story, there is a, a boy named Shasta and a horse named Bree, as, as you might guess. And um, they are fleeing from uh, a land of slavery, and they, they've been enslaved far away, and they're trying to get back to Narnia. And on their way, they have a, a pretty crazy series of events, and they are joined by a girl named Erevis and another talking horse named Huynh. And so the four of them are, are trying to get back to Narnia, and along the way they're um, chased by uh, this, the enemy of Narnia, and, and then they are, uh, have a, an enemy army is after them trying to attack Narnia, and so they're trying to warn Narnia of this coming attack. And along the way they have to go through the desert, and it's a perilous perilous journey, and there are lions chasing them all along the way, and it's really this whole crazy story. And they get to a point where three of the people get to rest, but Shasta has to go ahead on his own, and he has to warn the good guys about the incoming attack of the bad guys, if you will. And as soon as he warns the king about this coming attack, he then gets left on his own, and he's walking through um, these mountains that he's unfamiliar with, in the dead of night, all by himself, and he's surrounded by this dense fog, and he begins to feel really, really sorry for himself. He thinks about all the ways that his life has gone wrong, not even, not even beginning as an orphan in slavery, but all the things that have happened since he tried to escape, and he begins to say, well, maybe it would be better if I went back to the way things were. And the story picks up like this. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world Everything goes right for everyone except me. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or something was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing, but his invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. He had no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? he said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done to you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more he felt the breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. And Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. So he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they had been chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. 
And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the Lord's voice. Don't you think it was such bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with, an op- with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you, so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the whole earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that the voice was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad, too. After one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at his feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. The high king above all kings stooped toward him. Its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about its mane was all around him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face, and their eyes met. The next day, Shasta would would walk back through the same mountains that he'd come with, and he was with the the Narnian army this time. And as he was thinking about how terrified he'd been in the night and how afraid he'd been of the beast that was unknown that was beside him, he realized that he was standing on a path that was so narrow and that on one side was, was a cliff that would have surely led to his death and that the lion had walked so close to him the whole time to protect him from walking off the edge. He'd been so afraid of, of the unknown beast beside him, and he didn't realize that Aslan was protecting him the whole time. I don't know where you are this morning, and I don't know what you're walking into when you leave from here, but God is not a tame God. He is with us, He is for us, and He's already brought us out of death and into life. And if this sounds like good news to you for the first time, or maybe this is good news that you needed to hear again this morning, just be reminded of the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father God, um, we thank you that you are a God who delivers your people. We thank you that you have already won the the war, the great war over sin and death. But I pray that you would um, be with us as we continue to walk into trials and into red seas and things in this world. That you would teach us to trust you more and to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.